Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. We have a massive show lined up for you today. Um, we are first up going to be crossing to Scotland. We're, we're getting straight into it, Farm. Yes. Um, speaking with author Sandy Winterbottom, who's put an incredible book together. It's called The Two-Headed Whale, Life, Loss and the Tangled Legacy of Whaling in the Antarctic. And it comes from a journey that she took on a tall ship down to Antarctica some years ago. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting story um, of her journey there, but also some of the things that she discovered and then I guess a, a real thought-provoking exercise in, in the past history of whaling, but also the human impact of that as well. So looking at it through a whole bunch of different lenses. So there's there's a lot to unpack in this book. So we'll speak with Sandy about Amazing. that. Amazing. Can't wait. It's really, really incredible. We're then going to have a dive report with Myra Kelly. She's bringing uh, us all the latest on the great Victorian fish count. Um, I think she was looking at having a dive yesterday. Don't know whether she did because the conditions aren't that great this weekend, but we'll find out. And also just a um, bit of a reflection on the diving that's up for grabs under ripe here at the moment. Uh, how incredible it is. So looking forward oh, to that. That's always is one of my favourite spots to dive in Victoria mm. and so easily accessible. Whether you're snorkelling or diving, right here, always a success. It's always very welcoming and friendly, isn't it, once you get down there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, beautiful. Just the pier itself, just knowing that it's there. Yeah. yeah. And then we have a very special guest in Studio Farm. We've got Kate Parker from Daughters of the Deep. Hoorah! <laughs> um, so we'll be, we'll be catching up with Kate, who is the founder, and uh, we'll be talking about this amazing, amazing not-for-profit that is all about empowering women and girls to uh, pursue careers in the marine environment, in protection, science, diving, all that sort of gear. So um, cannot wait to catch up with her. It's going to be really great. Brilliant. I know there are a lot of people listening who've sent comments through going, can't wait to hear this segment from Kate. So yeah, looking wonderful. forward to that very much. And then to close the show, Jeff's coming in. Um, now, these are Jeff's words, the segment that can never be accused of being shallow. Jeff Maynard breaks through the glass floor with another movie where the action takes place beyond the limits of compressed air when sound waves goes deep. That's all I know, Farm. That sounds really mysterious. <laughs> he, he is our <laughs> international person of mystery, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> Triple R. I thought you might like this one, Farm. The headline, which grabbed me, and thanks, Rachel, for sending this our way. Keflopods have passed a cognitive test designed for human children. Oh, that does not surprise me No, at it doesn't all. surprise me either. If I, if I look at some of the children, you know, I think, yeah, dolphins, <laughs> children. Yeah, I don't know who's smarter. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested you looked at it through that lens. I was looking at it through the, uh, through the Keflopod lens. Um, so these were cuttlefish that were given a new series of what's called a marshmallow test. The marsh- I'll explain the marshmallow test in a sec. And um, results uh, may demonstrate, I'm reading from the article, which was published in Science Alert. We'll put a link to that on our page as well. Um, there's more going on in their strange brains than we knew. Ability to learn and adapt, the researchers said, could have evolved to give cuttlefish an edge in the cutthroat, eat or be eaten marine world that they live in. So the marshmallow test, it's also called the Stanford Marshmallow Test, is usually designed for children. So you have a child placed in a room with a marshmallow they're told that if they can manage to not eat the marshmallow for 15 minutes, they get a second one. This one's famous. Yeah. 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 So it's about that decision to yeah. hold off because yeah. you're going to get a greater reward at the end yeah, of it. Yeah, it's anticipation of future events. Yep. 
So this test that was done in 2020, so delayed gratification is what yep. it is. So in 2020, um, these scientists did a version of this with a cuttlefish. And so they showed um, this common cuttlefish, so sepia uh, officinalis, can refrain from eating a meal of crab meat in the morning if they've learnt that dinner will be something that they like much better, which is shrimp. So they can hold off, they get put into, you know, this experiment. And they, they do, they hold off because they know that if they refrain from eating the crab meat in the morning, they get shrimp in the afternoon. And that's really amazing. Amazing because it's not just because delayed gratification that is hours, right? That's just it's breakfast and then dinner. It's not just like, oh, if you hold off now, then 10 minutes later, you get, you know, something better. No, it's like an entire day they're waiting. Yeah. So that's really amazing. There's a whole lot more where they go on to describe a a series of more experiments as well. So I'll leave that for you to read for yourself if you'd like to. Um, uh, It's in Science Alert. So we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page too, but amazing. Fantastic. I can't get enough of the cephalopod stories. Like there's so many stories of these huge octopuses that live in aquariums and then just like one day they're gone. Yeah. They've just escaped through the escape hatch, you know, into the bay because they've watched the research, researchers, you know, pour water down a drain, whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my escape. Yeah. And they've been plotting it. You yeah. know, they've been plotting it. And then one day they're just gone. I love it. Incredible. Triple R. Now, there are some amazing books being published at the moment, and one of them is The Two-Headed Whale, Life and Lost in the Deepest Oceans, or also Life, Loss and the Tangled Legacy of the Whaling in the Antarctic, depending on which version you have. Uh, Its author, Sandy Winterbottom, travelled on a tall ship to Antarctica to trace the footsteps of Ernest Shackleton, and in doing so, Sandy's image of a pristine Antarctica was shattered by what she saw on the way in the form of a legacy of 20th century whaling, and that experience further affected by the discovery of single grave. To find out more about her journey, both geographical and otherwise, we now cross to Scotland to speak with Sandy about her extraordinary experience and the two-headed whale. Sandy, good morning. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Hello, thank you for having me on. Yes, good evening. It's yeah, it's evening here and we've got an aurora tonight in Scotland, so oh. it's beautiful. Oh, wow. Yes, I should have realised it's evening. So what time is it <laughs> where you are right now? Uh, just after 10 o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for staying up for us. And no worries. No, it's nice to speak to you. <laughs> um, but let's get this bit out of the way. The book is so many things. It's really incredible. Um, I've read it and uh, I recommend that everyone should buy it. So thank you for writing this book. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult one to describe, isn't it? Because there's so many, so many aspects to it. Yeah, we were talking at the start of the show, so many different lenses that you can look at it through. I thought we might start with talking to you about your background, which is in academia and environmental sciences. And, and I'm just wondering what, took, what it took for you to get on a tall ship. And um, to be clear to listeners, this isn't a modern ship with all the bells and whistles that you'd normally expect to be heading to Antarctica. This was a tall ship. What, what led to this? Yeah, I, I've always loved tall ships and um, fascinated by them. And uh, we up, uh, up at Dundee here uh, in Scotland, we have the, the Discovery Ship, um, Scott's Discovery Ship. And I've always loved old ships like that. So I've done a lot of sailing on, on ships like that. Um, I, I much prefer it to the sort of yachty sailing. And um, But no, I've always loved being at sea. So that was it was the sea that drew me and just the... the the idea of being on an old ship like that and and following in the footsteps of Ernest Shackleton because it was very much the same sort of ship that he sailed on that that we went what about it in particular is it just is it the how old was the ship that you were on 
So the ship we were on, it was um, just over 100 years old, and it was an old light vessel converted into a tall ship. It's uh, run as a sail training vessel these days. So, um, and they, so they take uh, they take youngsters and train them how to sail these old ships because they're very intensive work. Um, and they, and now and again they'll take paying passengers and take them on on epic travels like Antarctica. Um, but 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 you are. Um, part of the crew, you are uh, you are expected to work your shifts. So yeah, it was it was can very I, much can the I, idea of being part of a crew. Can I ask a dumb question? Did you sail that all the way from Scotland, or is that no. the thing, is that the thing that people <laughs> no, do? I know nothing dumb. about ships, obviously. Where did no. you get on? Um, so, so the the ship is the Bark Europa, and um, she's known as the Ocean Wanderer and travels all over the world. But um, during the 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 Southern Hemisphere um, summer, she goes down to Antarctica. So I flew down to Uruguay to Montevideo, and then we sailed from there um, down to South Georgia, South Orkney, South Shetlands, and then the Antarctic Peninsula, and then back to Tierra del Fuego. So oh, yeah, so it was six only, weeks in all. Only half the world, not the whole world. <laughs> That's <an> epic voyage. <laughs> oh, I would I would have loved to have sailed from Scotland. I really would have done. Yeah. <laughs> And you're on board with sixty other people, a third of those being crew. Um, what were did you were you all sort of heading down there with the same intent or the same drive to actually do a journey like this? I'm guessing the answer to that's yeah. no. Oh, you, yes, okay. Yeah, well, kind of. I think I think um, I think we were all drawn by very much by the the sort of wilderness and solitude of Antarctica, which is which is ironic when you're then crammed onto a ship with sixty people, and I think <laughs> actually quite a lot of us were probably loners so the the biggest challenge for all of us was uh, was actually the the social aspects but because we were on a watch system we very shortly became family you know almost it was we worked to, because we worked together and lived together um, we we became very close very quickly um, you're at sea for 12 days with no mobile coverage and no land in sight. Um, you mentioned before that you've been at sea before, but just having that real kind of cut off from, you know, all the things that we, we take for granted, we carry phones around with us every day. How was that for you and, and for the rest of the people on the trip? Uh, honestly, it was a blessed relief. <laughs> Actually, it was 12 days down to South Georgia, but the, the entire trip was six weeks. So we had six weeks with no mobile phone. We had we had some contact with the outside world via the ship's email, but but very limited. Um, and and it was interesting in in that actually it, it was it was incredible how much space headspace it gave us to to just shut off from from social media from phone internet email um and that's when i really started to write so for me it was a it was a huge um a huge journey beginning in lots of ways Mm. um let's get to the whaling station and the experience of what happened there can you describe what happened when you got to this midway stop in south georgia yeah so south georgia was the first stop and um we we had a couple of trips uh, ashore there and um I think it was on about the third day, we stopped at uh, a place called Leith Harbour, um, which is named after uh, a place called Leith Harbour in Edinburgh, just outside Edinburgh as well. So we so we were, um, and I think a lot of the other crew had gone off for a walk that day, so there was only a handful of us that went ashore on that particular day to Leith Harbour. And um, you, we're not allowed to go to the actual whaling station. So the, the whaling station was set up there in the early 1900s. 
um, by a Scottish company called Christian Salverson, and it closed in the 1960s. And it, it's basically been left abandoned. It's completely derelict. There's been no attempt to clean it up. Um, so, so it, I mean, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating to visit. We couldn't go anywhere near it inside it because obviously it's full of uh, a lot of industrial waste and, and asbestos that's not been cleaned up but we walked up along the side of it and then we um, discovered the, the little whaler's graveyard um, next to it as well so that that was that was the way this story started I guess that's right and so can we go to the the single grave I mentioned um, in when we were introducing you um, of, uh, of the particular um, former person Anthony Ford who had worked at the whaling station and this was this was sort of really where your story takes a, a quite a different turn yeah, so we, we it was quite interesting. We were wandering up and down the graves um, in the graveyard, and um, and it was it was interesting to me because there were so many men there from near where I lived, and because you know at that point I'm on you know to me I'm on the other side of the planet, and and I had no idea about the whole whaling industry. Um, but yeah, so it was I was walking up and down the graves, and and then literally just on the last row. There's this young lad, Anthony Ford, um, and it said on his gravestone 19 years, but he was actually 18 when he died um, from from Edinburgh, and and it just caught it just caught me, it just caught my throat. I it was almost like I yeah I don't I don't know what it I don't know what it was, but he, just the image of this young boy so far from home, and I, I just had to. The question just then just kept nagging me, what on earth is this young man doing so far away from home in this in this graveyard in this enormous place. I think it's important to mention too when when I was sort of reading the liner notes to this book and and I saw what this was about and there was something in my head that thought oh well it must have been in the 1800s but it wasn't it's it's far more recent than that that was the thing that really really kind of struck a chord with me. Yeah, very much so, because it was it was 1952 when he died. So so it was, you know, it's my parents' life, lifetime and actually not not that long before my lifetime, really. So it, it's tangible history. And, and like you, I think I've always, you know, my idea of whaling was Moby Dick 1800. Mm. I had no idea of the whole industrial scale of, uh, of of mid twentieth century whaling, and and that's of course was when most of the whales were wiped out because they killed about two million whales down there in the uh, uh, at that particular time. So it, it's a huge part of our history, a huge part of important history that's that we don't know a lot about, even though it's so so close actually in time, so tangible in time. Yeah, and it's also really. It, it runs so deep, those effects as well, because humpback whales have only very recently been taken off the endangered list after all of that. You know, they've only just started recovering and many other whale stocks have not. Yeah, that's right. And and whaling here in Australia went right through until the 1970s Yeah, with, at, mm, in Albany. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very much so, and I think you know even even now the the blue whales really haven't recovered at all. I mean, there's a, there's maybe five thousand left today if we're lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 
it, the human cost of whaling was something that really is drawn out in this book because I think there's an assumption, and, and you, you bring this out in your writing as well, that people who have gone off and sort of taken part in whaling activities sort of at, through this previous century, as we were talking about, have done so because it's something that, that they've wanted to do without kind of realising it. But there's, a, there's, there's another angle to this, isn't there? And that's what you bring out in this book. Yeah, and again, that that came as a real surprise to me because when I was researching Anthony's life, um, I ended up meeting some of the whalers that had sailed on the same same ship as him and and had, were his friends and, and grew up just down the road from him. So that that was a real surprise. You know, I I didn't imagine whalers would still be alive today. So um, again, it's this tangible history. So and and. And I was lucky enough to meet them, and I was lucky enough to meet Anthony's best friend, who had sailed with him. Um, and sadly, he's passed on now. But um, that that was a real privilege to meet him and actually hear his stories. Um, and I found myself finding sympathy for these men because when once I heard their stories and heard how light how hard life had been for them and and why they had gone to sea at such a young age, you couldn't help. Um, feeling for them really even though we we imagine whalers as these these people who had slaughtered all these beautiful animals were actually they were just young laddies and I think one of them had said to me you know he said I didn't kill whales I made soup I washed dishes and that's the truth um, and yeah. that was the truth for a lot of them. Yeah there's also um, an interview uh, that you did with one of these men um, in, in the later part of their life where they described what it was like and there was one in particular who only went once because he didn't realise what he was getting into and just the sheer horror of the practice uh, w- was something that he wasn't expecting and then and that's the only time that he went realised you know what was actually going on came home and never went back. Ah, uh, he discovered he was not a whale killer that's that's right yeah Yeah. so um sandy this book is just amazing it has so many messages and provokes an awful lot of thinking and i just wanted to finish by asking you if you could choose a a number one message or maybe the number one question for the reader what would you what would you like it to be oh gosh yeah (laughs) that's a tricky one but i i think my message would be really it's 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 the interlink between um, the exploitation of our natural habitat and our natural environment and, and the link with the human exploitation that goes along with it. And I think that's we see that the same today when we're exploiting the natural environment. Quite often humans are being exploited at the same time. We're all on the same planet. We all share the same planet. And and I think we it, we need to look after if we look after our environment more it'll it'll be better for all of us it'll be better for humans too so it's about taking care of everyone and everything excellent message to end on we've been speaking with uh, sandy winterbottom and the uh, book is called the two-headed whale in australia the subtitle is life loss and the tangled legacy of whaling in the antarctic it's published by greystone books and uh, we've already uh, we'll put a link to that on our facebook page and uh, yeah i strongly encourage everybody listening to this program to go and get yourselves a copy because it's uh, it's wonderful reading and it will really provoke some thoughts um sandy thanks so much for joining us all the way from scotland we'll let you go to bed (laughs) (laughs) brilliant thanks so much lovely to talk to you yeah great to speak with you too thank you thank you bye-bye yeah amazing stuff yeah it's it's such a powerful message as well you know like what we do to others we do to ourselves that's right triple r on fm digital online and via the app Without further ado, we're going to cross to Mara for this week's dive report. Good morning, Mara. 
Good morning, Ron and Farm. How are you? Pretty good. How's it down there? Uh, look, there's a lot of activity happening down at Blegari here this morning. Um, the skies are, are probably not quite as sunny and beautiful as they were yesterday, but uh, all of the little Sabo yachts have just headed out on the water. The car park is definitely filling up with a lot of scuba divers, and there's um, there's already a lot of divers in the water too. So I'm looking forward to getting in and checking out the, uh, the marina. Uh, what's the temperature of the water like these days? Is it still cold or are we are we get, getting a little bit more into uh, more comfortable temperatures now? No, summer's coming, baby. <laughs> <laughs> this is the news that everybody has been after. Um, we dived yesterday at Rye. Uh, we were in the water for quite a long time. Uh, but yesterday at about 10 metres depth, we had a solid 18 to 20 degrees wow. for, the, like, for the whole dive. So, um, so much so, I went in uh, without my undergarments on in my wetsuit and... Uh, I think I'm going to be packing my 7mm wetsuit away and bringing my 5mm out, which uh, I'm looking forward to dropping a, a lot of lead. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really great. And also for the free divers on, uh, among us, uh, including myself, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah I'll wait a little bit longer, a little bit longer. <laughs> and just for maybe... For, uh, for hopefully, it will, hopefully it will encourage a, a lot more people that have sort of been waiting for that water temperature to warm up. Um, yeah, to, to get out snorkeling, free diving, uh, even scuba diving, some people that are no more just uh, waiting for, for summer weather. Now, aside from the water temperature, Myra, um, I mentioned at the start of the program that the, the, the life, the wildlife under the pier is just going off right now. Yeah, look, I've, I've spent uh, the last fortnight, I think I've dived rye about five times. Um, haven't dived it for a very, very, very long time. And I've just been so surprised with what's going on under the pier. The, the, uh, the pier pylons that were cut off with the rectification works uh, about 12 months ago, they're now home to some really fabulous marine habitat. Um, the fish life, the nudie branks that are below there, the seahorses. It's just really beautiful to see how it's all, you know, all grown back, all come to life. Uh, so much so, it's it's probably going to be difficult to get um, two scuba divers go down uh, along the pier side by side. That it's that full under there at the moment. Amazing. Have you been to Elsa's Reef lately? How are the octopus is doing? Yeah, it's a hive of activity out there as well. Um, always interesting to uh, to sort of just observe the behaviour of of the. Uh, of the Ockies. Um, Have you found that they're outsmarting small children? <laughs> I, we I just had a new out, segment about I, that. <laughs> I, I think they outsmart adults. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, Myra, we might have to move on, but uh, that's been yep. amazing. And um, we'll catch up with you in the next week or two for uh, more descriptions of what's happening with the diving, but it sounds like it's really uh, swinging into an amazing season. Yeah, looking forward to a really big season. So everyone, get your gear, gear serviced, um, new gear purchased, so you're ready to hit the water. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, thanks, Mara. Catch you soon. Thanks, ladies. Bye. Bye. Mara Kelly there with our weekly dive report. Get Sounds in the good. water. <laughs> hey. Just don't swallow any. <laughs> no, definitely don't swallow any. Not this weekend. Um, now, speaking of, uh, of, of weather reports, Cliff Davis uh, has Cliff. just messaged us from Antarctica. Hello. Yeah. So, uh, Cliff, we've gone from Scotland to Antarctica this 
in just in this show farm. Amazing. Isn't that just mind-blowing? Still waiting for the space station to happen, but Antarctica <laughs> will do for now. From Scotland to Davis Station in Antarctica. Uh, Cliff says, another lovely day at Davis Station. Wind gusting around 30 knots and a balmy minus 1.4 degrees. Oh, it is balmy. Yeah. Um, and he sent an amazing photo, a beautiful photo of um, of uh, what looks like the Aurora Australis, but I don't think it is. Oh, no, it's the new new vessel heading down there with some um, cute penguins in the foreground. So we'll post that on our Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, we will. It's beautiful. Thanks. Oh, and some video, which doesn't look quite so enticing. It's very grey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cliff. I might post that as well in contrast. Triple R. We have in the studio with us Kate Parker, who is one of the founders of Daughters of the Deep. Um, Kate's originally from the UK, and she's uh, she moved here 10 years ago and has worked in diving on the weekends, and she now volunteers for Sea Shepherd onshore and offshore, and also uh, the Australian Volunteer Coast Guard these days. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and Kate is the uh, founder of um, Daughters of the Deep, who, which is a charity that aims to address gender inequality in marine industries all over the world. Um, They formed in 2021 with uh, three other friends and they're passionate about ocean conservation and providing equal opportunities uh, for all. So Daughters of the Deep, they raise money to fund programs around the world delivering education, vocational training and job opportunities for young women who may not have the economic or cultural backing to do so themselves. So... That sounds like a huge mission. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things that have kind of come out of from our original starting point where we just thought it might be good to get a few young girls their scuba diving certificates and get a few girls into the diving for conservation. Um, and it's now kind of grown and evolved into all these different projects that we have around the world um, that are trying to address gender inequality within marine industries. But um, yeah, it's a huge, it's been a huge undertaking, but um, it's been amazing how far we've got with it so far. Yeah, the amazing. Got off the ground. Yeah. What, what, was, what was your first project that you funded? So yeah, we first started in Madagascar. So so just to be clear, we're four friends who are around the world, um, but we do all the kind of fundraising and the media and organising to work with organisations on the ground. But then we partner with local companies that we know through our big network of we're all working in diving and conservation, um, and then we channel the funds into those uh, places. So we partnered with MRCI, which is a Marine Conservation Research Institute in Madagascar. And um, they identified a local girl in their community who um, she was actually abandoned by her parents when she was a young girl and her grandfather was bringing her up. And um, you have to pay to go to school there. And he was unable to work anymore and unable to to fund her to go to high school. And so um, she was identified as really, I mean, she was literally going around the community asking people to help pay for her high school fees because she wanted to go to school so badly. And so we stepped in and provided like a scholarship that um, paid for her tuition fees and gave us some um, educational books and resources. And we're funding her through high school. Um, and she is very keen on ocean conservation. She wants to get into marine biology. And we're hoping that eventually she'll be able to get employment through MRCI at the end of at the end of her high school education. Amazing. Yeah. That's completely life changing. And, yeah. and, and I like how you do this, where you're working with the people and the organizations that are already on the ground, that are already part of the community there, that know exactly where the money needs to go and what needs to be funded and who needs to be supported. That's exactly right because obviously one, we're all over the world and two, you know it, 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 you need to be quite sensitive to the cultural needs in the, those specific areas and so we work with local people on the ground who can identify young women who are in need of support that we might actually be able to make an impact with. So since we um, launched that first program in Madagascar we've actually gone on and funded another four women in the community as well who were identified as also requiring support to get them through their education and then moving on into a career 
within maritime industries. So, um, yeah, it's been a really great experience to be able to, you know, work so closely with local people and, and fit the model to the environment where it is. You know, each of our projects are different and based around the needs in the local community. So, yeah, that's right. Mm. What do you, um, I mean, that sounds already like a pretty successful <laughs> project, mm. but um, have you have you seen, because, you, you know, you, you were only formed in 2021, so it's not, not that long ago, but have you seen any, any of the results yet? Like... What, yeah. what some of the successes that yeah absolutely like we're, we're having such a great time watching our girls grow and evolve and um, yeah so some of the girls in Madagascar are like in their second year of university now and starting to take on work within the organisation that we're partnered with um, we've got a bunch of girls that we train to become whale guides for tourism in Niue they're actually still at high school but they love the project so much they're so excited about going out there and working with the whales so um, the local organisation Niue Blue have trained them to you know be comfortable being in the water around the whales and also understanding how close you can get and how close you have to stay away um, training them to work on the boats to interact with the tourists and uh, that was so successful we've actually launched again for a second year and now we have a new intake of girls so I think we're up to about 11 girls now who are in the program they're getting taught um, snorkeling they're getting um, scuba diving certificates later this year so we're already watching it kind of grow and evolve and our, our girls are sort of coming back for a second year intake yeah it's been a really beautiful thing to see yeah, how much and it's amazing and uh, like how does it work with like I, I'm not really sure I'm with you Obviously, not never been to Madagascar. Very sad for me. Um, and what's it like for these girls to do this in their own culture? Because you you mentioned like sometimes they have to go a little bit against cultural norms as well in terms of this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where you know we need to work with people who are who can deliver the the training, obviously in in the home language, and also understand like the, the complexities of that. Um, yeah, we we did have a program in Thailand, and we um, looked for a young girl to come on a diving internship through ATMEC, one of another organization that we're partnered with and um, a young girl called mine came and she was supposed to get two semesters of training and after the first semester she voluntarily left the program um, which was her choice but she was feeling a lot of pressure from her family to return home and to to not follow this as a as a career and you know in in some ways like, you could say that's a bit disappointing but in other ways I think that's a really good um, note that it's not always going to be easy and that women are often you know left to feel like they shouldn't be wanting to have their own careers and get their own education that they are just homemakers um, so we're still happy that we gave her that experience and that she got to try diving and maybe further down the line she might be able to go back into that as a career. But, um, yeah, not all of our projects are successful, but the ones that are, it's really nice to see the young girls getting qualified and getting getting out into the workforce, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty astounding and very life-changing for these uh, for these people as well. Now, uh, what's coming up? Do you have any exciting projects that you're starting soon? Yeah, we've got a few things in the pipeworks. We're looking to launch into the Philippines next year, um, but one thing that we definitely have... Uh, already organised is with an organisation in Indonesia called Lumen Ocean and they're based out of the Banda Islands in I think the northeast. and they have already an established project where they take young girls and take them all the way through to scuba, scuba instructor. Um, they're providing English language lessons as well to kind of increase their employability in tourism. Um, they provide a little bit of food as well so they get lunch every day for the girls and it's a two-year programme and we are looking to fund four girls to go into that programme starting next year. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And um, so I'm wondering, like, because obviously you're you're basically like you know looking for this project. How do they do they find you, or do you find them? Like, yeah, how does it work? A bit of both, yeah. So we're we're very happy to take on you know interest from anyone. We do mostly get people contacting us, um, but like I said, the four of us all come from a conservation background, so we've got a fairly big network anyway. Um, so mostly it's people who we already know who are working, doing amazing things in the community uh, that we're like, oh, you know, we can probably 
support some of your girls going through the programme. Sometimes it's an initiative that we create out of nothing. So we work with partnerships with the with the organisation on the ground and create uh, a, a programme that we can fund. And sometimes it's a programme that's already uh out there being, you know, has already been created. So, for example, we're, we're partnered with Sea Women of Melanesia. That's an amazing project where, they, again, they're taking local women, teaching them how to do things like um, seagrass monitoring and coral reef monitoring and things like that. Um, and we just provided some extra funds for them to keep going with that program. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah it's a bit to it's sustain a what's already Correct, there. Yeah. yeah. And this year they actually came over into Australia. There's now Sea Women of the Great Barrier Reef, which was super cool. They did a five-week program up there with local women from Queensland, from Torres Strait and Solomon Islands. And we're in talks with them to try and fund some more women to get more sea women of the Great Barrier Reef. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, you uh, are a registered charity here in, in Australia, and so you obviously rely heavily on those funds because you are do. all volunteers <laughs> doing this voluntarily. Um, so all of the funds are going into these amazing projects. Um, now, how can people support you best? Because I, I had a squeeze at your website, and you, you take donations, you've got some, some merch, like what works Correct. for you guys? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All, all, any and all of the above. <laughs> um, yeah, we're absolutely always open for donations that can just be a one-off or that can be an ongoing donation we do a lot of our fundraising through outreach events where we sell our merchandise um so yeah we've got a really cool website with lots of different um items on there that you can purchase all of that goes directly towards our projects but even if you just follow our social medias and share our stories talk to people about the fact that we exist you know um that in itself is a huge way to support us just to get our name out there and and hopefully get more girls funded wonderful and listeners if you are one of those people like me who likes to give christmas presents that matter you could uh, make a donation uh, to Daughters of the Deep on behalf of one of your loved ones. So just putting that out there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us and talking about this amazing initiative. Um, that was Kate Parker uh, from Daughters of the Deep. And if you go to our Facebook page and you click on the logo of Daughters of the Deep, you can see the website link in there and go and uh, buy some merch, get some Christmas presents going. <laughs> Please do. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Wonderful stuff. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. With great pleasure, we welcome back to Radio Maranup. And I welcome back. You're part of the team. Jeff Maynard, good morning. Good morning. I haven't <laughs> been here for a while. No, you haven't. I know. We realised this during the week. You did. And uh, you sent me a text and I went, oh, yeah, okay. Radio Marinara, <laughs> I remember them. Yeah, so, <laughs> so here I am. And <laughs> it, it actually worked back. out well because I was sort of, when, when you texted me, I went, oh, darn, Radio Marinara, I better do something. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was one of those sort of put it on the list kind of things, you know. And, um, and I had a breakthrough. Right. I think I've got a discovery. Yes. And it's exciting. And I think we can make a change um you know that i like 1950s movies yes. and i often come in with them uh, and mainly because of the, the the cars um not so much the music um but there's always sort of monsters which are a guy in a rubber suit coming out of the water with seaweed all over him and he carries a voluptuous woman off kind of thing while she screams um, sounds like and, me on a saturday just, dive that's just sort of the world I want to live in. And uh, anyway, uh, I said I started looking, after you'd sent me the text, I started looking for a movie or something to do. And uh, I actually found a 1973 one. But my breakthrough was, is some of these old movies actually predict the future. Right. And this is interesting. And I think, I think we can sort of go through some of them and see things that are going to happen. Um, any, anyway, so we're going to investigate it. And the first track is from a movie exactly 50 years ago, 1973. Okay, not 1950s, so, you know, not quite right. But nine, 50 years ago, this movie came out. So let's have a listen to the first track. Down, General Quarters. 
Attention, Mr. Thorpe. Launch the dory. Circle and search. Aye, aye, sir. Urgent all divers. Suit up immediately. Repair ship to Ocean Lab umbilical line. What's this all about, Doc? We've lost contact with the Ocean Lab. There's been an earthquake. We're going back down. Check us out. You're not ready yet. Or the hell we're not. Send a Mayday, Briggs. Advise Halifax we've lost Ocean Lab. Mayday. 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 Halifax, this is Triton. Whiskey Zulu, Quebec, 8871. Over. Now, earlier this year, the world's attention was turned to the underwater world for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> as it always is, uh, when the um, Titan submersible was going down to the Titanic uh, at about 3,500 metres. Contact was lost. And uh, for the next week or so, it was just a complete media frenzy, you know, as I said, for all the wrong reasons. But this movie, is, is the, it's not called the Titan submersible, but it's called the Triton. So I thought, oh, oh, OK. And we've got a very sort of energetic Ernest Borgnine and a very tired Walter Pigeon figuring out what they're going to do. Um, anyway, let, let's have a listen to track two because we've we've sort of lost contact with this this um, Triton, not Titan, um, at, at, at an unspecified depth. This is a bit vague about the whole movie, but so, something's happened, so we've got to figure out what's going on. Halifax, this is Triton. We're at fixed position at latitude thirty-five degrees forty-five minutes north, longitude fifty-seven degrees forty minutes west. We've experienced undersea earthquake and have lost contact with Ocean Lab. Repeat, have lost contact with Ocean Lab. Divers unable to locate. Now, we must have submersible rescue craft. Ocean Lab has rescue hatches. Over. She could have gone into the abyss. That's inaccessible. Or imploded. They've only got breathing mix for seven days. Repeat, seven days. Less if they panic. Over. Captain, you've got to understand our problem. All ships in this area are on rescue service. What about the company that made Sea Lab? They must have other submersibles that could help. It's a bit scary, Jeff. It's incredibly well. It reminiscent. Up, anyway, keep going. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a little spooky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it starts off. They've got breathing mix, whatever breathing mix is. I'm not quite sure. For seven days, and then about three minutes later, they've only got it for forty eight hours or something like Would that. Would be Heliox. So. They're talking about. Well, Which, did that exist can I, can okay, I yeah, get yeah, to yeah, that, yeah, Ron? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like my segment and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Okay. <laughs> You know, I'm, try, I'm, try, I'm trying to enlighten people here, and it's like, oh, you know, someone jumps in with the. You get the heckler in the in the audience. Is going, oh yeah, I know the punchline. Over, over to you, okay, Jeff. yeah. Do you mind? No, Thanks. Appreciate yes. it. Anyway, Ernest Borgnine. They bring in Ben Gazzara, who he comes in on a helicopter because he's some sort of deep sea submersible guy that he just kind of grins with the whole movie because he thinks he's handsome or something. Anyway, he he comes in, and he gets in this submersible, but they're trying to figure out now what they're going to do before their air runs out. Our problem is strictly one of time. If the pressure hull is still intact, there's life support remaining, oh, I'd say, for just under 48 hours. Doctor, I'm sure this has occurred to all of you, but uh, if someone were still alive in the ocean lab, wouldn't he have activated a pinger? But we have no proof either way. As long as that clock says there's still hope, Doctor, try. No argument, Doctor. So, lots of shades of you know um, um, of the uh, of the tragedy you know six months ago, but anyway they do get into their this this works out really well they do get into their um, submersible the it's an Elvin um, they go down like I said unspecified and they find the hatches have blown off but the whole hull is intact and the people are inside breathing on scuba tanks 
Which is pretty good after a few days. Well, yes. Yes. Um, but they can't escape, and this is the really tricky bit, um, because they're trapped by eels. There's all these little mini eels swimming around the side, and they're too scared to come out because of these things. I don't know, maybe they're slimy or something. But Are they electrical eels? No, no. Oh. They're, they're just funny little sort of, they look like freshwater eels. But they've been magnified. Uh-huh. You know, so oh, so they look big, yeah. Oh, well, there's other fish too because apparently it's near a volcanic thing and the water's warm. So you've got these sort of like clownfish, Nemos and things that are like about a metre wide. So they've magnified all these. So it's really hard to make like Nemo with these little gold stripes and all that sort of stuff look scary, but they try to do that. Anyway, they're trapped by these giant fish. So let's have a listen to track four. No sign of anyone. The hatches are blown. Maybe they're using their reserve tanks. Circle the area? We sure can. Here they are. One o'clock. They're alive. Those eels. They've got them trapped. Maybe we can draw them off. Cousins? They're low on air. Hamilton and Bradley are buddy breathing. Bolton's drawing the eels off. He's trying to help the others get away. So, yeah, they were trapped by eels at like I say, an unspecified depth, but they're in the abyss and breathing oxygen. And they all got to the surface successfully, which I think is pretty wonderful. So that part really didn't predict the future, Not but the rest, really. the rest of it was a little scary. I guess in the 1950s when this movie would have been made, people just assumed that eels were dangerous and scary and I, just accepted it. I think you it. could get away with a lot. You know? yeah. you, you, also, you, how big were those scuba tanks they were breathing? Because well, it takes me about an hour to drain one. Well... They must have been substantial. very special. Special, yeah, so, special, so, special. No, yeah, well, they were just normal sort of. They just swam out when the eels, they drew the eels off and they just swam out and got back in the thing somehow and oh. hey, back thanks. on the surface. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, you're welcome. Ple- that was great. Um, will you be back next year? I, I think I can sort of investigate other movies that predict the future. So. Oh, that, that is our theme for next year. Yeah. Wonderful. Looking forward to it already. Um, thank you. And also thanks to Kate Parker, who was in with us today, Mari Kelly with our dive report, and Sandy Winterbottom at the start of the show over in Scotland. Thank you, Farm. Enjoy your weekend. And uh, thank you, Rachel, very much, who's been panelling for us today, um, juggling lots and lots of balls. And thank you to David, who will have this show up as a podcast in the next few days. Um, I'm taking a couple of weeks uh, away. I'm heading up to New South Wales, to the south coast. So ne- next week, Dr Beach and Dr Surf will be in. We'll have car giving us a report on grey nurse shark conservation. Phil Jarrett with Immortals of Australian Surfing and so much more. Catch you next week. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.